Merciful God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word, which you promise, does not return void. We pray that your word would rest on us by the power of your spirit, speaking to us, encouraging us, strengthening us, exhorting us. Bind us together by the power of your word and the work of your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. You know, and as I was uh, thinking back over the last couple of years, you know, one, one of the things I actually heard a lot that was actually good from COVID, from, from families, was that, that during the, especially the early days of COVID, there was a return to the family meal around the table. Um, without all the athletics, you know, shut down, with all the extra activities shut down, without being able to go to many places, all of a sudden, people were gathering again around the table to eat dinner, you know, and, um, and one of the things I think this exposed in our society that's broken um, is that as a society, we've largely grown away from the table being the center place of our homes. Um, you actually see this in architecture too. If you've, if you've ever walked into a newer home, most of them do not have dining room tables anymore. I mean, dining room, dining, separate dining rooms anymore. And, uh, and when you do find dining tables and dining rooms, you often find them full of junk or dust, untouched, unused for meals. And when we do use them, it tends to be the same way we use a gas station for our car, right? You just go in and you dump the fuel into the, into the system down the throat and you run to the next thing. You know, and actually, you know, a lot of different, you know, diet plans will actually call food fuel. Not blessing from the Lord, not a gift of God, but it's just fuel that you put in the gas tank to get you off to that next thing. I think what makes this view of the table and this view of food so problematic for us is that actually disconnects us from the heart of our faith. Uh, Because make no mistake, our faith is one that actually revolves around the table. The entire story of scripture is actually a story that I could summarize using the table. A table that we first gathered around in the garden. A table fellowship that was actually broken in the fall, right? It's a, it's a fellowship of, of the table that, that broke in the, in the fall was we gathered around a table with a snake instead of with God. And the rest of the story is actually God trying to again gather his people back to his table. That we could, that we could have fellowship with him. I mean, God promises a land, right? The promised land was a land that was flowing with what? With milk and honey, with food. Uh, and before they got to go out of the exodus out of Egypt to that land, he gathered them around the table, which we call the Passover feast, which we'll get to later. But they gather around the table to go. And, you know, Jesus, too, as he comes into, the, into, the, into this world, has come to gather us up around a table. A table that in his parables about the great feast in, in the Gospel of Luke, he actually compares to the kingdom. He compares an invitation to the kingdom to, the, to his table as an invitation to God's kingdom, a return to garden fellowship. And at the end of Scripture, at the end of the story, the end of time as we know it, what are we being ga- all gathered to? We're all being gathered to a table, a meal, a feast. The marriage feast of the Lamb is what a, awaits us, where we feast forever and have full fellowship with our God. And here in these final moments of Jesus' life, Jesus is tapping into that story of the table. And he's inviting us to this table because in the table, what do we find is we find the story of redemption. At the table of Christ, we find redemption. 
It's at the table of Christ that we find fellowship. It's at the table that we find the healing for the world. And it is at this feast that we find the forgiveness of our sin. Because at this table, not only do we feast on food to nourish our bodies, but we feast on Christ himself to nourish our souls. And we're going to look, so we're going to consider this idea of feasting and, and how feasting brings about redemption in, in two different ways, barring on the, an outline from others. And the first is this, that we feast on his body for our deliverance and we feast on his blood for our forgiveness. So first, we feast on his body for our deliverance. Look with me back here at verse 22. It begins, and as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And so this, this already shows us that we're, we're stepping into the story kind of midstream. Something has already happened as they were eating. So the first thing we've got to recognize is what's happening here is that Jesus is, is leading his disciples through the Passover meal. A meal which remembers the first Passover event in Exodus. And this meal had a very specific liturgy, just like our, our Sunday morning worship has specific liturgies. And uh, it would not have been unusual for the head of a household uh, to lead the Passover meal. And Jesus is kind of the head of his disciples, right? So this is not strange so far that he's leading his disciples through a Passover meal. This all would have been expected. And then what happens? So Jesus takes the bread. And this bread is actually a typical part of this meal. It's a bread that's called the bread of affliction. And this is unleavened bread. And part of the liturgical story is remembering the bread that they ate in their time of deliverance. And it was unleavened bread. It was a bitter bread, reminding them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt, reminding the people of where God had delivered them from. So Jesus takes that bread, the bread of affliction, and says, take, this is my body. This is where things actually get really weird. You know, I say this a lot, but sometimes we're so familiar with some things that the Bible says that it's kind of the weirdness and the strangeness of it doesn't quite grab us. But imagine if you're eating dinner with somebody and they broke some bread and said, hey, eat my body. It's like that for them. This is weird. This is not normal. Um, the, the normal statement around the, the bread would have been this. This is what they actually would say when they broke this bread around the table. They would say this, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from heaven. So they would thank God, the giver, source of bread, and then they would relate it to this original Passover meal and the Lord's provision for them. But instead of doing that, instead of relating the bread to the first Passover meal, what Jesus is doing is he's inserting himself into this story. Jesus says, this bread of affliction is my body. Take it, eat it. You know, and the word for, for body here is a word in the Greek called soma. And it's a, it's a, it's a, Speaking more than just of his physical body, there's a different word for that. This is more speaking fully of his personhood, his very being. He's saying, take this, eat this. This is my whole self I'm giving to you in this bread. And uh, just to go down a rabbit trail for a second, this is, this is often where we get into old church controversies about what does Jesus mean by this statement that this is his body? And what does this mean about the presence of Jesus at this table? And... Um, some will say that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. It's as if you're chewing on his flesh. And some will go the opposite direction and suggest that this is merely a, a memorial meal that he's just figuratively saying, this is my body. And, and when we do this, we're just remembering Jesus and his sacrifice. But Jesus isn't present in any meaningful way at this meal other than remembering the work that he has done in the past. And 
As I've kind of considered those kind of two ends of the, the spectrum, and, and uh, this week as I've been studying and reading lots of different books, one of the things that came to mind and I realized is I think both of those are actually reductions of the truth. I don't think either of those ends of the spectrum actually get at the deeper meaning of what's happening here. Because to say it is merely memorial denies any presence of Jesus in this, in this meal. That it denies that his soma, right, his spirit, his nature is with us in any way. And to say that it is his literal body, I think, reduces the meal to the mere physical nature of who Jesus was. But Jesus has actually given us more than just his physical body here. He's giving us himself. And how did Jesus give himself to his people, to his church, after he ascended into heaven where he now sits physically? He gave us his spirit, Right, his spirit, his Holy Spirit lives inside of us. This isn't a lesser presence for us in this meal. And in some ways, it's a greater presence. And his spirit, right, the soma of Christ, so to speak, is present in this meal still today, feeding your souls. So what does it mean that we feast on him? Right, how does he actually feed our souls in this meal? Well, in this act here of inserting himself into the Passover story, saying that he is the bread, the bread of affliction, Jesus is saying, I am now the bread of affliction. My body will become afflicted. He is saying, I'm gonna die through one sacrifice and it, and it is through my body being broken, being afflicted, that you will be delivered. Right, as this bread once marked your deliverance, so my broken body will now mark your deliverance. As once you fed on this bread as you were being delivered from darkness, so now you will feast on me as you're delivered from darkness. My spirit will dwell in you. And this body, this affliction, will now mark your deliverance from sin. Right? Just as he came to deliver, deliver Israel from their bondage, from their affliction, from their slavery, he comes to deliver you from these same things. He comes to deliver you and me from our own bondage, from our own affliction, from the bondage of sin and death, from the bondage of our slavery to idols, the bondage of living in a fallen and, and broken world, the afflictions of the world. He's come to take all of that upon himself. As Peter says, quoting from the Old Testament, by his wounds, you are healed. By his affliction, he takes your afflictions upon himself that you can be free. And the thing that Jesus is hinting at here is that just like your body needs food, your soul needs food. And in this meal, Jesus bids us to come to him to feed our souls. You know, one, uh, one of the better books written on the Lord's Supper by a man named Alexander Shimaman. I, I don't know, that's, I always pronounce his name wrong. I just kind of start mumbling at the end of it, Shimaman. But he says this, this is a great line. He says, man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desires is finally a desire for him. Which kind of begs the question, what if, the longings in your soul, all of the longings in your soul, were really just hunger pains. What if all those longings in your soul were hunger pains, were your, your quest for meaning, your quest for purpose, your searching out peace? As Jesus becomes the bread of affliction, he is saying there's only one place those longings can be satisfied. And it's in Christ himself and feeding on him. And in this meal, he feeds your souls and he satisfies your longings. This is what Jesus is offering here. Jesus is saying, take, this is my body. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Feed your soul with my spirit. I will deliver you from the afflictions by becoming afflicted on your behalf. I will deliver you from bondage by being bound myself. This is the first thing we do is we feast on his body. 
to be delivered from our affliction as his body becomes afflicted that we might have peace in him. And uh, just one more little rabbit trail is this is actually why we don't use unleavened bread in our communion practices. I don't know if you've ever wondered why we use leavened bread instead of unleavened bread when the, you know, the OG supper was unleavened bread. Well, the early church actually didn't use unleavened bread either. This is a, this is a later addition in the, in the history of the church. And the reason is because Jesus had taken the affliction of sin upon himself. So we actually don't need to eat bitter bread anymore because Jesus ate that bitter bread on our behalf. And so the loaf of bread is now leavened. And Jesus actually used leaven to talk about the kingdom of God, to talk about the parables of the kingdom. And so now that the bread being leavened is, 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 is as if it is leavened with the kingdom of God. And so we use leavened bread to remember that the kingdom of God is like the, is like the heaven in the bread which is growing in our world. It signif signifies that your affliction is over. It's a beautiful truth. And so as we feast on the bread, we feast on the, on the body of Christ for our deliverance. And this is where we can move to the second aspect of this meal, because this meal doesn't just deliver us. It does do that. But it doesn't merely deliver us from affliction, but actually forgives us from our sins. That's the second thing we find here, is that we feast on his blood for forgiveness. We feast on his blood for forgiveness. Look with me back here at verse 23. It says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And so one of the things to note is that the entire Passover meal was actually structured around four different cups of wine given at different points of the liturgy of the meal. And each of these cups helped remember different aspects of the story of their, their deliverance. And they represented the four different I will statements from God that God gave to Moses. You know, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will set you free from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And, and lastly, he says, I will make you my people and I will be your God. And so and these four cups of wine were structured to help tell and retell the great story of redemption. And so the first two cups, uh, they'd already drank before the meal. And the, and the third cup after the meal. And from Luke's gospel, we know that this moment is happening right after the meal. And so the, the cup that he is using um, right here is the, the third cup. Um, and this references God's statement that he will redeem the people with an outstretched arm. And for this reason, this third cup that they drank in this Passover meal was known as the cup of redemption. And so it's the cup of redemption that he is using in this part of the liturgy. And this is right the part of the liturgy that remembers the first Passover lamb. Right, how it was blood on the doorposts so that they'd be spared from the wrath of God. And uh, this is the hand of God at work. This was the final act that allowed for their deliverance and redemption from Egypt. So this is what all this is kind of referencing in this moment. And then Jesus says this about this very cup of redemption as they're drinking it in verse 24. He says this. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Again, this is where things get a little weird. I mean, imagine, again, if you're sitting at a meal and someone pours you a cup of wine and said, hey, this is my blood, take it and drink it. It's really strange, it's uncomfortable. You know, the traditional saying, what they would have expected to be said was this, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine. And again, instead of saying that, Jesus inserts himself into the story, saying that this cup is my blood that I'm giving you. It's a bit gruesome, uh, and, but, the, you know, but the more you look into how 
the sacrificial system worked in the Old Testament, the more you realize the system itself is a bit gruesome. There is a lot of blood. Forgiveness was always bloody. As, as one pastor talking about this says, um, God's goodness to Israel always left a trail of blood. And, you know, you read through the Old Testament, you read through the laws and Leviticus and the work of the priests, and you quickly learn that the priests were in the business of blood. The Old Covenant is, the old covenant is covered with it. So what's up with all this blood? Well, the, the blood is trying to accomplish something that can't fully be done with the blood of animals, with the blood of bulls and goats. Because sin demands death. We learn this from the, the beginning of the story in Genesis 3 and in Romans and everywhere in between. Sin, sin brings death into the world, but in the grace and mercy and pursuing nature of God, he allows and created an institution where the blood of animals would cover the wages of sin. But because people keep, kept sinning, right, the blood of animals kept flowing to cover the sin. Again, as one pastor put it, the, the old covenant in some ways is crying out for finality. It's crying out to, to stop the bloodshed. This is the, this is kind of, this is the history that Jesus is tapping into here. Because look at verse 24 again. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. Jesus is saying, listen, my blood is ushering in a new covenant. A new covenant in my blood. And Jesus is actually quoting from Exodus 24 here when Moses came and gave the law to the people. It's the only other place those words like that were, are in the Bible. And uh, in Exodus, after the people received the law, what happens? Well, they sacrifice bulls and they're slaughtered. And then they, they sprinkle the blood on the people, sealing the covenant, offering forgiveness to the people. And here Jesus is sealing a new covenant for us. Here Jesus is, is inaugurating a, a better covenant, a covenant in his blood. Or this is the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of in Jeremiah 31. This is the new covenant that they were longing for. A covenant made with Jesus' blood. The blood of a new covenant, a better covenant, a better blood. To quote John the Baptist, it's a covenant of the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Or Jesus is the better Passover lamb. He is the better redeemer. The lamb who doesn't just cover your sins. He doesn't just cover your doorposts, but the lamb who takes our sins away. Your sins are actually covered, gone, completely destroyed by the blood of Christ. One sacrifice. This one pouring of blood is so strong that all your sins are gone, period. This is an incredible moment. I mean, when Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. He actually meant it. He meant there's no more sacrifices you need. No more blood needs to be shed. No more. Just think about the gallons of blood that were shed in the Old Testament up until this moment. And now with one sacrifice, all of that is done away with. His blood is more powerful than thousands of gallons of bloods of bulls and goats. No more sacrifices are needed. No more blood is to be shed. The, the Eucharistic feast, which is a play on the Greek word that Paul says, the Thanksgiving feast in the church doesn't look like the old covenant, but is a ceremony remembering that which is finished. No more blood needs to be shed. The cup we drink, when we, when we drink of this cup, is the cup of forgiveness. It's an invitation to his table. It's an invitation to taste your forgiveness. Right? Feasting on the blood of Christ is feasting on that one sacrifice that can actually forgive your sin. It's by his wounds you are healed. His blood is the blood that sets us free. Through him and through his blood alone you find forgiveness and redemption.
So when you come to the table, you get to taste it, right? It is, it is both bitter as wine is bitter and sweet as grapes are sweet, right? Through the bitterness of his death, we find the sweetness of everlasting life. You know, um, our church back in St. Louis, they had a pulpit, kind of similar size to this, but in the front of it, they had carved into it a pelican, and it was hard to tell exactly what this pelican was doing, but what it was doing is it was plucking, I don't know how you, I mean, you can't, it's really hard to represent this in a wood carving, but it was plucking um, its own blood from its own chest and feeding it to this little baby pelicans. I don't know what you call baby pelicans, but it was feeding it to baby, baby pelicans. And there was this myth that, about pelicans back in the early church days. It turned out not to be true, which is a bummer. But, but, they, but you often find pelicans as symbols for the early church because they thought that a pelican would actually eat itself and feed itself to its baby birds in times where there was no food for them. And uh, this is a beautiful picture of, of, of feeding off the sustenance of the, the mother. And this is kind of what Jesus does, right? He, he feeds us himself so that we can have life. You know, what's beautiful about this institution of the Lord's Supper is he doesn't just stop there, but he actually points towards the future of the story too. Here in verse 25, he says this, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So what's happening here? Well, just as Jesus kind of transformed that third cup of wine, inserting himself into the story, giving it the full meaning, pointing to his sacrifice, he also changes the meaning of the fourth cup for us. This fourth cup of wine was known as the, the cup of restoration. It says that I will, it's a statement that says, I will, I will make you my people and I will be your God. Right? It's the cup that points to the, to the end of the story when all things are made new, when the healing power of the table reaches the ends of the earth. But what does it say about that here? He doesn't, he doesn't drink it. Right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't drink of it. And, and they don't drink of it either. He says, not until the day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. Friends, Jesus actually still has not drinking from that cup. That fourth cup is the thing that's awaiting us at the end of our present age when we will dine around the table with Christ and until that day, this meal itself is not yet finished. And so when we partake in this meal each week, we're partaking in a meal that is ongoing. You know, one of my favorite writers on the Lord's Supper, Keith Matheson, uh, he's got a great book called Given For You. Um, but he writes this. He says, when he, speaking of Jesus, abstains from the final cup, the meal is left open making it a continuous, ongoing supper. In a sense, every observance of the Lord's Supper is actually a participation in the first Lord's Supper that we just read about. What a beautiful thing to think about. That every time when we gather to the Savior, week in and week out, it is as if Christ himself is handing you the bread and the wine. Right? The table that we gather around is the same table that the disciples are sitting around here in this moment. Right, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is still here at this table offering the same cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of, of, of forgiveness that he offered to his disciples. Christ nourishing our souls by his spirit, reminding us that he has taken our affliction, he has forgiven our sins, and he has done so with this meal. In a real profound way, this table is the thing that transforms the world. Uh, you know, in, in 2012, there was a large earthquake in northern Italy. And one of the towns that was uh, affected with this was a town called Modena, which is the home of uh, several fancy Italian things. Uh, but one of the fanciest for me that I love is the delicious Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese. 
And, uh, and one of the tragedies of this earthquake was that the, the place where the cheese was stored was, was damaged and hundreds of wheels of cheese were in jeopardy of being lost. And, and they had to find a way to, to sell it really fast or they wouldn't just be cleaning up the rubble from an earthquake, but everyone would lose their jobs and they would be desolate. And uh, so they were heading towards this great tragedy. And then um, uh, one of them, one of the people who, who worked for this cheese company reached out to a famous chef in the area and, uh, and asked him to help. And so he says, okay. And so he, uh, he creates a new recipe that uses this specific cheese, a lot of it, and began disseminating this recipe out to his people. And soon tens of thousands of people were making his recipe, buying this cheese. And in a short time, all the cheese was sold and, you know, everyone, no one lost their jobs. It's this really cool story. And in talking about this event, he says this about this moment. He says it was recipe as social justice. Through one meal, he helped save a city, right? One meal changed everything, brought justice into being. And if one, and if with one recipe, a city can be saved, what can be, what can be saved with the power of the meal that Christ gives us his people? How much more power is there in the table of Christ to transform the world? Right? It, is, it is through the recipe of this table, through this meal, that every wrong is made right. It is through the table that the world is saved. It is through the table that the world finds its healing. And Jesus is inviting you and me to this table to find your longings satisfied in him and to find rest from your afflictions and forgiveness for your sins. And in this, you know, we're actually sent into the world to invite the world that they would come and taste and see as we have, right? We're sent to the highways and the byways and inviting everyone to come and feast. I mean, the, the job of the church is simply to invite the outsider in, to invite the one who is not at the table to come to this table, to have faith as we have faith, to experience the end of affliction, to experience the end of our sin. And as we have experienced the great hospitality of Christ, so we extend it to others. May we be these kinds of people, a people who feast with great hope, a, a people who feast with joy, knowing that we feast on our great Redeemer who has delivered us from affliction and ushered in a new covenant in his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful God, our Redeemer, our great Savior. I pray that you would indeed forgive our sins, that you would heal our afflictions, that you would help us to find our rest.